Turn to your Bibles now that you've already taken out. You have your fingers stuck there. It's open to Psalm 37. And let's ask the Lord to bless this time now in his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. And Lord, we thank you so much that we have the privilege and the opportunity to gather as your body. Unbothered by anybody keeping us from doing it. We, we, don't, we don't do it under the threat of anything. Lord, we have the freedom to come and do it. And so as we're here, Father God, we want to hear from you. We ask that you would speak to us from your word, that you would illuminate your word to us. And then, Father, that you would give us hearts that are willing and ready to accept your word, Father God. That we would receive it openly and wantingly. In Jesus' name, amen. As we go to Psalm 37, we're going to look at verses 23 through 31 tonight. And remember the grand theme of Psalm 37 is, how do you handle it when evil is around you? And though you live rightly, evil seems to win. Bad things seem to overtake us. How do you how do you handle it? How do you continue on when you're living rightly, when you're being righteous and it feels like everything comes against you and that you're being punished for that as opposed to being rewarded for it like we expect to be? And we've looked at it that we have to have eyes of faith to see what it is that God is actually doing. And then we've also seen that we have to be content in the Lord. If we find our contentment outside of the Lord, we will never be content. And tonight, what we're going to see is when you see everybody else triumphing in their bad choices and their wicked choices and their evil that they choose to do, you and me are called to continue walking rightly. There is no reason for us to stop living rightly. You see, water always takes the path of least resistance. Water fills any container that it's put in. It becomes that container. We're not called to be water. We're called to be salt and light. We are not to conform to whatever shape that we're put in. We're called to change the flavor of things around us. It's easy to walk down the road when there's no troubles and there's no danger, right? If, if you knew that this road was perfectly smooth, perfectly great, you'd walk down it no problem, no questions asked. You might even walk backwards. But what if there were pitfalls and, and potholes? And what if it was like Saul Kleinfeld as you go down? And you wouldn't walk backwards down that road, liable to trip. But here's the other thing. There's little growth on the path that is easy. There is little life on the path that is smooth. It's been said that any dead fish can float downstream. Only the live ones can turn around and swim against the current and against much resistance. That's what we're called to be. We are called to be the fish that swim against the stream, not just flow and go with it. It's not one of those things where... Um, well, everybody else is doing it, so I might as well join in. Or I do everything right and everybody else does everything wrong and they're being rewarded, so I'm going to join them. Psalm 37, as we remember, it's written by David. It's written by David in the twilight of his life and he's writing from the position of experience of a life lived walking with God. It's a difficult path to walk and there's many challenges along the way. And, and I'm reminded as, as, as I come to this passage and, and contemplate what David was writing, I'm reminded of what Jesus spoke of, that there's two paths. You know, it's, it's just like there's, there's two types of ways to go in the stream. You can go downstream where it's easy, or you can swim against the stream. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. We, we hear about the narrow road, and we think that that means en enter through Christ, and it does. But we always forget that part that says, 
The road is difficult that leads to life. The answer to how do we respond when the wicked around us are triumphing, when they're winning, when they're gaining, it, it's not time to, to throw in the towel. It's not time to live by the platitude. If you can't beat them, you might as well join them. We have to continue walking rightly. And David, in these verses that we're going to look at, gives us the way in which we do that. Starting in verse 23, David writes, he says, A person's steps are established by the Lord. And he takes pleasure in his way. And though he falls, he will not be overwhelmed because the Lord supports him with his hand. I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous abandon or his children begging for bread. He's always generous, always lending, and his children are a blessing. So turn away from evil, do what is good, and settle permanently. For the Lord loves justice and will not abandon his faithful ones. They are kept safe forever. But the children of the wicked will be destroyed. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it permanently. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. His tongue speaks what is just. And the instruction of his God is in his heart. His steps do not falter. And so there's going to be three different areas that we're going to look at. And it's going to be about how do we continue walking rightly? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, number one, to walk rightly requires right steps. And right steps are established by the Lord. That's what David says in 23 and 24. He says, a person's steps are established by the Lord and he takes pleasure in his way. Though he falls, he will not be overwhelmed because the Lord supports him with his hand. And so David is saying that a person's steps are established by the Lord. He's saying that it's not in here, but the original language isn't talking about every person's step. He's not saying every single person who ever lived their steps are all established by the Lord. And therefore the wicked are just walking in the steps that God established for them. That's not what he's saying. There's other translations. And if you have the new King James or the King James version, it probably says something along the lines of that a good man's steps are established by the Lord or ordered by the Lord. You see their steps, the, the, the steps that God has established are the good man's steps. And their steps are ordered and founded. And walking rightly requires right steps. And right steps are established by the Lord. They're ordered and established by the Lord. That means the steps that are taken. That means how many steps are taken. And most importantly, when those steps are taken. This is important, and I don't want us to miss this because I almost did as I was studying this, and, and, and the Lord like really brought it to my attention. But this indicates not only the forward progress in our life are ordered by the Lord, but also the stops in between the steps. You see, the stops or times of waiting of times of inactivity or forced rest, as some of us find that the Lord has to do with us. Sometimes he has to force us to rest. Those are established by the Lord also. That's hard for us to understand. But let that linger in your mind a little bit that your steps, when you take them, how many you take, and the pauses in between the steps are all ordered by the Lord. Allow the Lord to have that in your life. Now it also goes on to say, David writes that he takes pleasure in his way. And I struggled with understanding that verse, right? He takes pleasure in his way because there's two pronouns that are hard to tie to who they're referring to. I struggled to understand which he is he. And I'm not talking about how you have to choose your own pronouns these days. We don't do that. 
I'm wondering, is the he, the Lord, who takes pleasure in the way of the ones whose steps he, the Lord, has established, or is he the one whose steps are established by the Lord and takes pleasure in his, the Lord's way? And through much contemplation, through much aggravation, and through much prayer with the Lord, this is what he's told me. It's correct both ways. It reads correctly both ways. God takes pleasure in the way of the ones whose steps he's established and the one whose steps are established by the Lord takes pleasure in the Lord's way. That was really eye-opening for me to understand the Lord takes pleasure in the steps that I take, in the way that I'm walking. The Lord is pleased with the one who walks in his way and the one who walks in the way of the Lord finds pleasure in his way. And David says that the, they find pleasure in his way. And I think it's because what happens next in verse 24, though he falls, he will not be overwhelmed because the Lord supports him with his hand. To be overwhelmed is to be hurled down or thrown down forcefully. And David knows that the way that the Lord has us walk in and the steps that he orders for us, they're not always easy. I'm going to repeat that. The steps that the Lord has ordered for you, they're not always easy. In fact, a lot of times they're difficult. Remember Jesus said, difficult is the way. And they aren't necessarily safe either. But neither will God lead us into destruction. Neither will God lead us into temptation. That is beyond our strength. Now, I am not one of those that believes the Lord will never give us more than we can handle. I have learned, yes, he will. Lots of times, all the time. Here's how it really goes. The Lord will not give us more than he can handle without giving us his strength. And we're going to cover that verse in a minute. But he won't lead us in a temptation beyond our strength unless he also gives us his strength. 1 Samuel 2.9 says, He guards the steps of his faithful ones. The wicked perish in darkness, for a person does not prevail by his own strength. My brother and sister in Christ, you are not here today prevailing in your own strength. You have not made it through the difficulties by your own strength. It's the Lord whose hand supports you. Psalm 66 verse 9, the psalmist says, He keeps us alive and does not allow our feet to slip. Now that verse that we all need to have in our heart to know that God does give us more than we can handle, but he gives us his grace to handle it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overcome you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so you may be able to bear it. Now, the promise in this verse from David in verse 24 is if you stumble, or even better yet, when you stumble along the way, because we make mistakes, right? Or am I the only one? In, in, in life, we make mistakes, right? The, the Lord leads us one way. We say, I know which way I'm going to go, Lord. I got this. And then we take a step and we trip over a tree root that just was right there and we didn't see it. Maybe you're struggling with obedience. Maybe you're struggling to take those steps of faith. God will not cast you off or cast you out or kick you to the curb because you struggle. When we fall and slip on the Lord's path, he picks us up with his own hand. And I, and I love the picture that happens in the gospels. And God, I love Peter because he reminds me of me. He's very brash. He's very straightforward with it. And he's like, okay, let's go. And then he gets himself into a sticky mess. In verse uh, chapter 14 in Matthew, verse 28, remember the disciples are out on the boat and they're just fighting against this crazy storm. And 
Then all of a sudden they see somebody walking on the water. And they're like, who's that walking out on the water? And they go, oh, it's the Lord. And so Peter goes, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he, Jesus said, come. And so climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on water. And he went toward Jesus. And you're like, oh, Peter, wow. Look at that faith. Look at those steps he took. Those steps are ordered by the Lord, by the way. He commanded, he said, here, come. And he was able to get out and walk on water. And he started walking on water and he was going in the path that the Lord had laid out for him. And it says, when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. You see, he started to stumble. He started to slip and fall, being weak in faith. He said, Lord, save me. And look at what happened. Jesus didn't say, oh, save yourself. He reached out his hand, caught hold of him in his hand. And he said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? We read this as a rebuke from Jesus. It's not a rebuke. It's an encouragement. What a strong hand. He lifted Peter. Peter was no weakling. He was a strong fisherman guy. He's your blue collar worker sinking in the water. And Jesus grabbed him with one hand and lifted him out because that is the strength that he has to hold us from slipping and falling. This is the strength of Jesus' hand. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he says, my father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So you are doubly safe. You are in the hand of Jesus and you are in the hand of the father and no one can snatch you out of either hand. That is the strength of the hand that holds you. And Psalm 145, 14 says, the Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. Take pleasure in the way of the Lord, for there is safety in the way of the Lord, even though it's wrought with danger and it's troublesome and it's hard and it's difficult. So the steps are ordered by the Lord, but the steps are marked by generous and good works. David writes, he says, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous abandoned or his children begging for bread. He, always see, he is always generous, always lending, and his children are a blessing. He says, turn away from evil, do what is good, and settle permanently. For the Lord loves justice and will not abandon his faithful ones. They're kept safe forever, but the children of the wicked will be destroyed. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it permanently. So David remarks about how the steps of one walking rightly, they're marked with generosity and good works. David is speaking about his entire life experience. He says, when I was old, all the way until now that I'm old. He says, I've never seen the righteous abandoned. Maybe your translation uses another word, forsaken. And maybe that brings up a memory of a verse in which it says that he will never leave you, never forsake you. David is saying, I have never seen the righteous forsaken. And he also says, I've never seen his. And I don't know, again, this his, this pronoun, it's just like out there in the wind. I don't know if he's talking about the righteous man, his children, or God's children. But I see it, it can fit either way. There is no righteous man among us who would ever allow his children to beg for bread without doing something to fill it. God is the same way. He will not allow his children to beg for bread without providing for them. Now, David was aware of a time in which there was a, a dreadful famine across the land. Um, there's a book that uh, talks about the return from the land of Moab after the famine was over. That book is called Ruth. When they returned after several disastrous years after they had fled to Moab, they found that the people of Bethlehem had been graciously and miraculously provided for. Psalm 145, 15. Remember, we looked at Psalm 145, 14, and now 15, the next one says, all eyes look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. Our God is wonderful. 
He's the same one who took Israel out into the desert 40 years. Manna fell from heaven. This is the same one Jesus said that there are two sparrows flying and, and that they neither gather or anything. He's all, and if one of them falls from the sky, the Lord doesn't, he, he knows about it. And he says, aren't you worth more than they? And, and the food, they don't have to toil or anything like that. The Lord provides for them. Won't he do the same for you who's worth more than they are? Proverbs says, the Lord will not let the righteous go hungry, but he will deny the wicked what they crave. Now, someone may object and someone may come up and they might say, you know what? I know of instances where these things have actually happened. And I have two answers for someone who would, who would respond in that way. First, David may have been talking about that he never knew of a righteous man to be finally forsaken. They may have gone through periods of seemingly forsakenness, but ultimately saved by God. The second is he might be stating a general principle. And here's the thing. Um, there's a possibility of isolated exceptions that happen throughout, but scripture often makes sweeping statements that describe normal outworking of spiritual laws. And there might be exceptions and they don't disprove the general principles. We read of the miraculous times Elijah provided for food. We, we read about he made wonderful cakes that I would probably never eat myself. They were called dung cakes. So I, I wouldn't eat those. We read about the time in which he was fed by crows. We read about where he was at the uh, widow's house and she only had enough bread and she was going to make it for her son and then she was, they were going to eat and just die. And he said, make me a cake first. And I promise you, you'll never run out. I don't know if I'd have the faith that she did, but she made him the cake first. And then she had enough to make more and to make more. And they didn't go hungry. God provides for the righteous. And here's why. He's always generous. He's always lending and his children are a blessing. Now you can also read that with the he being the righteous man. The righteous man is always generous. He's always lending and his children are a blessing. And so you'd say, yeah, nobody would let that man's kids go hungry. Why? Because he's the most generous guy. If you need help, he's the guy that you go to. If you need a loan, he's the one that's going to give it to you. And his kids are so wonderful. How could you let them suffer? I, I see that it, the he has to be the Lord though, because I can't see a righteous man being able to do that. Um, my kids are wonderful and I love them very much, but I don't think everybody sees them as a blessing all the time. I see them as a blessing a lot of the time. Sometimes they're a little bit troublesome, but what kids aren't, right? But I want us to read this through the eyes of the Lord who is always generous. I'm not always generous. I don't think any man always is generous. The Lord is always generous, always lending. Does he not give us what we do not deserve, knowing that we can't even pay it back? And his children are a blessing. The children of God are a blessing. The one whose steps are established by the Lord, they're always generous, open-handed. Their children are a blessing. And so is the Lord to the one whose steps he establishes. He, he gives to them and his children are a blessing to him. We sometimes go around going, oh, I'm so troubled. Lord, I got to ask you for help again. Lord, I'm hungry again. And we're like, man, he must be kind of tired of me. I want you to read this verse and I want you to underline it. And I want you to write and, and say, you are a blessing to the Lord. He is blessed by you, not because of you, but because of what he does through you, through the righteous one, through the one whose steps he establishes. Why does God take pleasure in us? I don't know. But I guarantee you it's nothing in any of us. It has something to do with what's in God. The promises good will come to the one who lends generously and conducts his business fairly. Let our steps be guided with generosity. We may not have much, but what we have, we should be generous with. Maybe we do have much and what we do have, we need to be generous with because the moment we stop being generous with what we have, God can't give us any more. 
because any more would ruin us. Let us be generous and conduct business fairly. That means we're not looking to get a over on somebody when we make a business deal. And that means we're not trying to cut corners in order to make a greater profit. We're not trying to uh, fabricate some stuff in our taxes as we file them so that we get a better refund and whatnot and all those things, right? Those are the steps of the righteous. Those are the steps in which we walk rightly. He distributes freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever and his horn will be exalted in honor. That's the Lord. He gives to the poor freely and his righteousness will endure forever. And if we walk in his path, you know what he's promised us? That he will clothe us in righteousness forever. Now, I always have to be careful as I go to this last one. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have to be careful. I don't think God is telling us to just give to whoever asks of us without regards to, like, you don't want to loan money to a drug addict, right? I think we need to be wise. We need to be discerning of genuine, true need. Not that we make everybody fill out a uh, paperwork to prove that they need it, but we kind of get an idea. We know who's coming to us with bad intention for what they're going to use. And we know those who could really use it. And we shouldn't withhold from those who could really use it. I, I remember reading um, this, this um, recounting. There was this family. Um, he was a pastor. And here's what he did. He had a, a chicken farm, right? He had a chicken farm. And so he, he would always get eggs. And he would take the eggs. And he would sell them. And he would sell them. And he would sell them for a dollar for a dozen. This was back in... This was a lot of money, but it was back um, when they would have been like 30, 40 cents a dozen. And he was selling them for a dollar. And people were like, man, that's really. And there was this one needy family that, that wanted the, the eggs. And, and, and they said, can't you just give us a break? I mean, come on, you're the pastor. And he's like, it's got to be for a dollar. Well, come to find out the money that he made from selling the eggs, he donated to a orphanage to help support them. And so we have to be mindful of where the money is going. And, and we have to be generous in that. But we can't be generous to everything, right? But let our hearts be marked with generosity. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you without hearing them out. Generosity is one way to shine within a dark world because the world says, look out only for yourself. You got to take care of yourself because no one's going to take care of you. If you give away all your money, well, that's your fault. Now you're done for. And it's like, no, let's be a bright light in a dark world. In a world which gives hope to nobody else, let us be the ones. To, hey, if a little bit of money, if, if what I have and what I can help you with gives you hope, let me be that. Let me be that working of Christ in that. Isaiah I'm sorry, those who walk rightly are called to be generous because God himself is generous. Has he not been generous with us? It says that he has given us his only son. How then should he withhold any other good thing from us? The other thing is through his prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 58, wonderful chapter. You got to read the whole chapter. I'm going to give you a little snapshots of it. It says, isn't this the fast that I choose to break the chains of wickedness, untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him and not ignore your own flesh and blood? Because then your light will appear like the dawn and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you. And the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. At that time when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am. If you get rid of the yoke among you, the finger pointing, the malicious speaking. 
And then he says, and if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in the darkness and your night will be like noonday. When we are walking in this world and we see wicked triumphing and we see and we feel like good is losing, we need to be that light in the darkness. The one who's walking rightly and whose steps are ordered by the Lord, not only marked by generosity, but we're also marked by good works. And it's not talking about some good works here and some good works there. And, oh, you remember that one time that I did this really great thing? And you always point back to that one thing that you did? No, this is talking about a lifestyle of good works. Your life should be seasoned with good works. So that people aren't surprised. Oh, did you see what he did? Can you admit, like, him? They should be like, oh, yeah, totally expected out of them. We, we expect that out of them. That's who they are. Because they follow God, because their steps are ordered by the Lord. David writes that in order to do the good works, one has to first turn away from evil. You can't do good works while you're still walking down the path of evil. You can't. David is saying you have to turn from evil, get off the path of evil, turn aside, leave that path of evil, and instead do what is good, do that which is moral. Do that which is admirable. And it's interesting to note here that in order to leave the path of evil completely, one must do what is good. You can't leave the path of evil and refuse to do good because you'll still be on that path of evil. James 4.17 says, so it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. So to leave the path of evil we have to choose to do good. Now, while it seems, many will point to this passage where it, where it says that they're marked by generosity and good works, that you're saved by this. And no, we know because other parts of the Bible say you're not saved here, but a lot of people will point to this passage and say, see, you have to be saved by your works. And you can't be saved by your own works and you can't be saved by anybody else's works. It is only by the work of Jesus on the cross that anybody is saved. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says, For you are saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And then we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You are created for good works. That's why you need to walk in good works. And God prepared them ahead of time for us to do. Did you know that God had a plan for your life before he ever saved you? He had good works prepared for you to walk in. And all he's saying is, look, here's the steps that I've ordered for you. Walk in them. Titus 3.5, it says, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we've done. He saved us according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. When you gave your life to Christ, he gave you the Holy Spirit. You were born again, born from above, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, given new life, saved by faith, not works. But we have to remember the other side that's written. Faith without works is dead. James said, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister without clothes and lacks food daily, and one of you says, go in peace, stay warm, be filled, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? He continues on, he says, in the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith without works. He says, and I will show you my faith by my works. And then he sums it all up. He says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. We have good works 
because we have faith. Our faith in Christ Jesus, our faith in our God who has saved us, drives us to good works. Do good because the Lord loves justice. We do good works, not because we get ahead, not because we get anything on this earth. We do it because God loves justice. And we do it because our faith says he won't abandon his faithful ones. The believer is secure in the Lord, not because of the good works, but because we're his children and because we're a blessing to him. There was a Bible scholar who said, his F.W. Dixon, he says, if you lack assurance, there's only one way to gain or regain it. Take the word of God. Take it and believe it. God says you're his, that you are safe and absolutely secure and that he will never let you go. Take a large dose of that. I, I tell people all the time, the, you, you have to choose to believe the truth. If you choose to not believe the truth, you're choosing to believe a lie. And we know that God does not lie. And so what God says is truth. We have to choose to believe his truth. It's hard for us when we walk in this life and we see evil triumphing and we, we feel like good uh, when we do good, we suffer for it or that we're set back for it or somehow we are made to pay because we choose to live righteously. But, and, and a lot of times that's tied to like our bank account or it's tied to where our funds are at. Oh, I would be more generous, but I just don't seem to have enough. And if I give away what I have, I won't have enough. So Hebrews, the writer says, keep your life free from the love of money. Timothy will tell you that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money's not a root of evil. The love of money is. And so the writer here in Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself, Christ said, I will never leave you or abandon you. We have to remember that. Whatever we have in this life, we need to remember it's not because God has forsaken us. It's not because he's left us, because he's promised that he will never leave us and never forsake us. But the wicked, they may look like they have it all. They might have big old castles in the, in the hills and it might be filled to the top with dollar bills or hundred dollar bills or whatever it is. Proverbs 2.22 says the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous ripped out of it. At the end when Christ comes to set things right, the wicked will not be left. And all that they've amassed and all that they've just stored up for themselves. As God said to the, to the farmer who said, hey, my barns are filled. What am I going to do with all? I know, let's build bigger barns so I can store more for myself. And he says, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. Now whose is this going to be? Let us not have the love of money, but let us be reminded that he will never leave us, never forsake us. Your steps are ordered by the Lord. They're marked by good works and generosity, but they're built in instruction and they're sure steps. Verse 30 and 31, it says, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. His tongue speaks what is just. The instruction of his God is in his heart and his steps do not falter. So David brings us full circle in that right steps are established by the Lord and those right steps, they're built upon instruction. His instruction. The mouth of the righteous, it utters wisdom and the tongue speaks what is just. The mouth is just full of wisdom. It's brimming with wisdom. What he speaks is sound. It's just, it's, it's not something that, where you're like, wow, that guy's speaking out of both sides of his mouth or it's not crooked. It's not deceitful. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus told the Pharisees this. He says, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good things when you're evil? He says, because the mouth speaks 
from the overflow of the heart. Matthew 15, 11, he goes into it again. He says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Jump down a few verses in that same chapter and he says, don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and it's eliminated. But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart and this defiles a person. He says, from the heart come evil thoughts. From the heart come murders, adultery, sexual immorality, thefts, false testimony, slander, all this stuff. It comes out of a heart filled with corruption. And so what are we to do? If we want to have the mouth of the righteous that speaks wisdom, that speaks what is sound and just, that's built in the instruction of the Lord. And that instruction of the Lord is happening in the heart. The law of God is in his heart. And then it says, because the law of God is in his heart, what does it say about his steps? They do not falter. They are sure steps. Have you ever seen a goat walk across a very narrow precipice? How do they do that? because they're sure-footed. And our lives can be just as sure-footed if we're built upon the instruction of the Lord. Your steps are sure and they don't falter because the word of the Lord will uphold you. They're sure-footed. They don't falter. You won't slip. You won't waver. When you, when you have your heart built up in the instruction of the Lord, you know what? You're not going to pause when God says, I need you to go forward. You're not going to hold back when God says, I need you to give me your all. You're not going to stop in uncertainty and you're not going to disobey with unwillingness because your heart is filled with the instruction of the Lord. David is saying that the steps of the righteous, they're sure because they're formed in the instruction of the Lord. And I like what Spurgeon says about this. Spurgeon says that the righteous one who steps are founded upon the Lord. He says he has the best thing. The best thing is the law of God. That is the best thing in this world. Can we agree on that? And it's in the best place. It's in his heart. And when you have the best thing in the best place, it produces the best results. That way his steps do not falter. They do not slip. How do we... The, the psalmist continuously. Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, my God. Your instruction is deep within me. And my favorite that I always go back to, Psalm 119, 11, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. We have to get that word into our hearts. I was just talking about it today. It, it, it amazes me still. I cannot hear a song for 20 years. Has it been 20 years? Let me ask you guys. You know that song, Drops of Jupiter? The one that plays in the stores as you're shopping now? The same songs that I used to go out and party to and whatnot, and then now I'm pushing the grocery cart and I'm listening to it while I'm shopping. All it takes is two musical notes, and I can... The entire lyrical whole thing comes racing back. Why? Because it's buried in my heart. We need to have God's word like that. And that's why I love it when God's word is put to music because it gets buried in your heart and all it takes is a few notes and it comes racing back. And we need to do that. We need to have that. In the face of dark days and evil seemingly triumphing around us, it is possible to continue walking uprightly. We continue walking rightly when we recognize that God establishes every step we take. God has established the good steps. God has established the bad steps, the happy steps, the sad steps, the hard steps, the challenging steps. He's, he's ordered the positive and the negative. 
And I always go back to what Paul wrote in Romans, that we know this, that for the one who loves God and is called according to his purpose, that all things work together for his good. God is working all things together for his good. This includes our going out, our coming in, our laying down, our getting up, our walking, our sleeping, our buying, our selling, our doing business, our, our, our talking, our listening, our walking, our driving, our activity, our inactivity, our waiting. And yes, our times of rest and forced rest. Because he is God, there is no accidents. Nothing ever happens to the child of God by luck, chance, fate. No circumstance, whether good or bad, comes to us apart from God's determined purpose for us. We can also continue walking rightly, remembering that God promises that when we fall, we will not be overwhelmed. You know what that frees you up to do? To follow him unabashedly, without any restraint, to go a hundred miles an hour forward with God. And if you trip and fall, he'll pick you up. He'll dust you off and you can continue again. You don't have to fear walking with God that, oh no, I'm going to fail utterly, totally, and completely. And that God will be done with me. When the path is narrow and winding, it's hard not to fall sometimes. Life is like that, right? We all stumble in many ways. Sometimes our circumstances get the best of us. We might find ourselves screaming at a TV. Our team might not be winning or whatever. You know, the stress just overcame us. We, we might find ourselves responding to somebody who we love dearly in a very unloving way. God will not allow us to be overwhelmed or overtaken by anything in our life. Maybe there's been just like one bad news after another in your life. And you're just like, I feel like I'm drowning here. Know this, God's promised you will not be overwhelmed. He will support you with his own hand. Nothing can happen that will utterly destroy us and nothing will happen that will sever your relationship with the Lord. Paul said that there is nothing that can ever separate us from the love of God. The reason is clear. It's because he upholds us with his mighty hand. I think of a father walking along with his son. When, when I was, when my kids were little and we used to, we were teaching them how to walk across the street and they had to hold our hand. They wanted to walk because if you put them in the stroller, oh my gosh, they would start screaming. So they had to walk and, and then you had to walk extra slow with them. There's two ways that a father and son might hold hands. My kids like to hold my hand, but their hand doesn't fit around my hand. Their grip is loose. If I were to suddenly pull, all of a sudden they're out of my hand. The other way, when I cross the street with them, this is how I would hold their hand. I would grab their hand with mine. Because then if something happened, I'm strong enough that I could lift them up. And I can take them where I want. That's what God does with us. You may stumble, but your father's hand upholds you. Walking rightly takes marked steps. Steps marked by generosity and good works. And it requires a heart so full of God's word that the mouth can't help but to speak forth justice and wisdom. And if you're here tonight, if you're listening tonight, and you are not a child of God already, that very first step of walking rightly has to be taken at the foot of the cross. The very first step comes to the foot of the cross, repenting of your sin, recognizing that you are on the path of evil and separation from God. You have to ask for forgiveness the forgiveness that was provided by Christ. Because you think you're taking the first step in finding forgiveness, but you need to understand God took the step first when he sent his son to come and die for you on the cross. 
He already paid the penalty. You're not asking God to sacrifice his son. He's already done it. You're coming and saying, God, I recognize that you sent your son to die, that I might be forgiven. And so I come to be forgiven. And if you pray to God and you say, God, here I am, broken understanding that I am separated from you, but I want that forgiveness that's promised through Christ. And I believe that Christ died for my sin. And I believe that Christ was buried and that he rose again. And I believe that he, has, he is alive today. And I believe that in him I have new life. The Bible teaches that you will be saved. That whoever comes to Jesus, he gives them the right, the lawful right to become children of God, born from above and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, set on the right path, able to walk rightly. And now your life can be ordered by the Lord. But you have to come to him. And my brother and sister in Christ, if, if you're that one that was on that path, and you're like, man, I stumbled. And I feel like I've stumbled so far that I can't get up. Understand this, you don't get up under your own power. You come and you turn to your God and he will uphold you with his mighty hand. He will lift you up. He will put you back on it. And don't be ashamed that you've slipped and fell because the path is narrow and it's winding and it's hard but it's the one that leads to life. And you need to know that you're on that right path and you need to pick up and you need to keep walking on it. And we need to continue walking rightly. And we can do that together as we continue to live for Christ. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight, Lord, and we just thank you. Father, I thank you for David's words. I thank you for his insight and and sharing his lifetime experience, Father God. And Lord, we have two choices. We can learn from somebody else's experience or or we can go out into the field and learn it ourselves. But Father, help us to understand and and to see it from the perspective of one who's lived it. You don't leave us or forsake us. You're there for us. Your promises ring true. Your desire is for us that you find us as a blessing. You call us your own. You sent your son to die for us. Help us to believe that. Help us to live out that faith. Help us to walk in those steps and allow them to be ordered by you, Father. That we might continue walking rightly in a world that is completely dark. That we would still be the lights and the salt of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.